Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am really excited about our next guest, Jack Thompson, also known as Jack the Ultra Cyclist, who is currently in Spain. So it's, I'm not sure, I think it's like 6.30, 7 o'clock over there. So he's done riding for the day and I'm just getting up. So Jack, thanks for joining. Excited to have you. Thanks for having me, man. That's good to finally connect. I know we've been, uh, you know, Jack and I have been communicating via social media and, 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 and keeping up on each other's you know, life and what we're dealing with. And um, I'm really excited to chat because you've, you've kind of changed the game. You know, you, you've been pushing some pretty heavy duty boundaries in cycling. And also while you're doing that, you're talking about something that I think is really important, which is mental health. Um, and you and I discuss that on a regular basis. Um, but first I want to start, like, what was that catalyst? Like, what was that moment where you said, I want to get on the bike. What was that thing? That little, that little click. Yeah. So like, I'll give you like a brief backstory because it'll, it'll make a lot more sense when I give it a backstory. And for those that are listening. So yeah, I would have been 12, 13. And I realized I just didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel good about what was going on around me. And at the time, mom and dad said, I think you need to go and chat with someone. So I went and, you know, to begin with, I was nervous, but I went and chat with a, chatted with a psych about it. And um, basically said, look, mate, I think you're going through, you know, a bit of a rough patch, um, sort of diagnosed me with depression. Um, and it was just so happened that at the time I started doing triathlon. And what I found was that having these little goals each day, you know, whether it was jumping on the bike, jumping in the pool in the morning or going for a run after school, these little goals allowed me to sort of forget what was going on in my mind and focus on, you know, three little things per day. And I found that my mental health just improved, you know, out of this world. So yeah, spent the, spent the years at school doing triathlon and it got to my final year at school and I wanted to go to university when I finished school. And so I said, you know, I'm going to give this away and just concentrate on studying. And I noticed my mood dropped right off again while I wasn't sort of training and exercising. Anyway, fast forward a year, I got into university um, and, you know, I wasn't interested in riding a bike anymore. I actually wanted to go to the gym and lift weight and, you know, become a, a man, so to speak. I was like a, quite a skinny little guy. And uh, so, yeah, started, started studying, started lifting weight and, you know, I actually just ended up mixing with the wrong crowd and developed a substance abuse problem. Um, so just basically partying too hard and, um yeah, I have an addictive personality. So when I start doing something, it's always, you know, I'm doing it 200%. Uh, and I was partying 200%. And yeah, I, I went down a very dark pathway and ended up in rehab. But anyway, I was lucky enough to come out the other side of that. And when I came out, my dad said, you know, why don't you jump back on a bike, mate? And I thought, I didn't have a great relationship with my dad at the time, but I thought, no, I don't want to get back on a bike. You know, I spent all these years trying to put weight on and, you know, I'm going to get on a bike and I'm going to get skinny again. This is the last thing I want. <laughs> anyway, I did it just to shut him up. And I fell in love with the bike again. And ever since that, there's been this association of, you know, the bike provides me with a very clear uh, mindset. Uh, and over the, I guess it was, I guess it's been the last eight years now, I've sort of, yeah, transitioned from working full-time to now being full-time on the bike and, and based in Europe. And it's essentially become my job. And yeah, I've just, I have a passion for, I love to push myself, but I think it's a, it's a fantastic, um, I have a fantastic opportunity to talk about my mental health, you know, in conjunction with riding a bike. And I think, you know, for me, that's pretty special being able to combine the two. And I guess that brings us to where we are today. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when the proverbial shit hit the fan on this planet with COVID, you know, um, you and I started corresponding quite a bit about, you know, 
goals for both of us and where our headspace was at that time. And, and I was, I think I was way worse off than you were at that point because I had restaurants imploding and yeah, but there was a lot of tidbits that you were giving me. And I don't know if you realize this and I, and I really want, I think this is really important to share with you because things that you were telling me and little things that you had said had really made me focus on how to get out of the hole that I was digging. You know, like those little mini goals, like, you know, I think one of the things you said was like, I get up and make my bed. That's one task done. Right. So I started doing those things. I was like, okay, I got the bed made. I got the finish the dishes at the end of dinner. You know, it was like this process that I started to create for myself. And those were all from tidbits that you had shared with me because I was really, and I mean, the texts were sporadic. The information was pretty jumbled. And I think probably you on your end understood it and was like, okay, you need to hone it in. And it worked. So thank you. Oh man, I'm stoked to hear that. Cause it was, it, I, I'll be honest, you know, I was out riding, but there was moments where I just couldn't, there were days that I didn't want to get out and get out. And yeah. I think those tidbits of information allowed me to move forward, to redirect and rethink. And I think, the public needs to understand like, you know, that there's that motto, it's okay to not be okay. Right. Yeah. And that's on your wheels. Right. And, and I yeah, think, yeah. So let's kind of go through piece by piece, you know, it's like, so you started riding again, right. And you started shedding all that muscle mass. So yeah. you went from being the macho dude, right. Big guy to, yeah. you know, a, a bike rider again. And, and what is that whole term mean? Right. Like macho dude. Right. Yeah. So, you started getting back in the book. What was it that started to like, was, how did the mileage start to be this thing? Like, yeah, it's fun. You push. There's always been, there's this thing that I like to say, there's solace and suffering, right? Because you're pulling away from one bit of pain that you can't see and can't control. And you're then controlling a moment of pain for as long as you can. Right. Yeah. I, that's a good, I've not looked at it like that before that you said like, yeah, putting one aside that you sort of you've got this one that you can control so it's almost like a nice way of dealing with it you know as a kid it was always a it was a thing you know I would say like oh man this really hurts over here and my grandfather would like flick my ear he goes well now focus on that (laughs) (laughs) right and and I think that I'm curious as to how did that switch start to happen from just doing a casual ride or a group ride to I mean I mean let's break down some of the big numbers that you've done. I mean, the mileage is epic. Like the, the, the last one you did is just insane. And and we'll get to that, but how did you go from the casual riding to getting yourself to feeling better to crushing mileage? I mean, the mileage you do is epic. Most people can't even do that in their car for crying out loud. And you're doing it on the bike. It didn't happen overnight. And it's, yeah, there's like a story behind that as well. So I, I wanted to go down that conventional route of racing and, you know, I, I, I started racing locally and, you know, I had an opportunity and I went and tried my luck in Belgium and I was just, I was not good enough, but I, you know, I had this passion for it. I enjoyed it. And actually after that stint in Belgium, I, I actually came to Girona for the first time. I've taken some extended leave off work and I basically just pushed myself too hard. And when I came back to Australia, I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue and that was difficult because I couldn't exercise and I could see my mental health suffering. And I I took six months or a year off, like it was pretty bad. And when I actually came back to riding, I thought, you know, I don't want to race anymore. I've sort of been burnt by this. Like, you know, my body doesn't like it or I've done it the wrong way and you know, I don't want to do it anymore. And I was just so lucky that I, I grew up with a dad who was lucky enough to retire quite young. And his goal when he retired as, a, as an insulin-dependent diabetic, he was you know, motivated to stay fit. His goal was, oh, I want to ride my bike around the world. So we had this dad that was always off on these adventures. And that's where I got the bug from, I think. Because then I thought, you know, maybe I can do something like this. And, you know, you can see it all coming together. Like... I start doing some longer kilometers, the obsessive personality starts to kick in. And then it's just this, this big ball snowballing. And I went to, I did my first sort of ultra event, which was the transcontinental in probably 2015 now, I think. And uh, 
I remember setting off into the night and I just thought, you know, what? this is the first time I've actually felt alive. Like I was, I felt so good and it had only just begun. And, you know, fast forward 10 days, I didn't feel so good at the end, but, you know, I got to the end, I finished, my dad was there to meet me. And at that point, I, I, I decided like, I don't want to go back to, to working a conventional job anymore. Like I've had so much fun doing this that you know, I want to try and make an, an opportunity out of it. And so, yeah, it's been like a long process, but, you know, year after year, I've done more and more and sort of worked out ways that I can, you know, make it a job. And yeah, it's been a slow process, but a very rewarding one to look back on. Some of the things that you've mentioned, I think are really important in to the, the way that you've evolved it into this, your sport. And, and ultimately I'm going to call it your sport because there's not many people that are doing what you're doing. <laughs> the obsessiveness, right? there is so much to doing what you're doing that evolves around that the obsessiveness of the equipment the nutrition the training the feel on the bike and you have to obsess about those things to be able to go to those lengths like yeah. do i need another tiny shim under my 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 shoe insert so i don't have hot spots let, right and am I for that as well like I'm always adjusting changing you're a tinker I can tell you probably drive your team crazy right drives <laughs> <laughs> <I was> me mad <laughs> but that's part of it right it's like it's not yeah. just being able to, to tick in the miles it's making sure that the nutrition's right your head's in the right space your bike feels the way it, you want it the tire pressure is the way you want it you know everything feels right along the way and that's that obsessiveness so you're like tagging two things at once. You're being able to crush these two big pieces of your life in one big thing. Yeah, it's, I sort of, I like being able to obsess over it because it, it, I feel in control of it then. And I think that's like what you mentioned before. It's like you, you put one thing aside and you've got something you can, you know, obsess over or push yourself with. And that gives you that sense of control. And I think that's a nice thing because, you know, while my mind might not be, you know, in control, I feel like I'm in control because I've got these 10 different things that every day I'm obsessing over. And maybe that's, you know, maybe there's a bit of a secret and, you know, keeping on track is, you know, you have these little things that, you know, again, it's like these little goals, whether it's eating, whether it's, you know, jumping on the bike and going for a ride, whether it's, you know, tinkering with your bike and cleaning it, it's like, they're just little things that become a part of a routine. And I think that's really important. So what is your average day? What is, what is your average case on the bike for a day? You know, like it's not that crazy. Like it, it goes in waves. So like on an average week with no events sort of on the horizon, it might be 500 to 700 kilometers. A day. No, sorry. That's what I'm saying a day. So everybody understands that. So, okay. So in a day, average day is like, wake up and it's always at the same time because again I like I like knowing what time I'm getting up and then I have a routine and it's like every morning I drink a glass of water I put the coffee on I check the news back home I go outside and I get a bit of fresh air coffee finishes boiling drink it have some brekkie do my activation stretches get on the bike and go so I'm normally gone by like 9 30 and it's like clockwork it's like I'm never a minute late. I'm never a minute early. I've just dialed that routine. And then it's anywhere from normally like three hours to like might be 12 hours, 13 hours on a long day. And then it's- That's a lot for a lot of folks. Three hours, like I don't even come close, nearly close to the mileage that you do. And I said, so, yeah, my average is about 50 miles a day, right? Yeah. So that could be anywhere between, depending on elevation gain and descent, it could be anywhere from three hours to, you know, whatever. And I tell people and they look at me like I have, like I'm growing horns, like I'm cr 50 miles. You wrote 50 miles. I don't even like driving 50 miles. It's like to get people to understand 12 hours in the saddle is long. Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. At the moment, like at the moment, like I probably couldn't bring myself to do it. It's like the motivation of event really allows me to like, I could do it day after day if I wanted to, because I just, I'm so like focused in my mind at the moment. Like I have goals, but 
nothing super crazy. So I'm sort of, I'm trying to enjoy not doing as much and, you know, I'm actually going to the gym three times a week and working on other things. And, you know, it's like a new stimulus and I, I enjoy it. <laughs> so, yeah. But after like a long, like one of those long days, it's like, yeah, eat your food and go to bed. There's not a lot of time for anything else. Um, and would, but yeah, it's not sustainable day after day after day. So I think there's a, sometimes a misconception that every day I go and do massive kilometers, but it's very periodized around like an event or, you know, it might be two days a week, I'll do a long ride, but the other rides might be two hours and they're more intense. Um, because I guess it's a delicate balance of doing too much and finding yourself, I guess, in a bit of a red zone. And then it's very difficult to dig yourself out when you, uh, yeah, when you go down that pathway. I'm just gonna flick this so I'm out of the sun a little bit. Whoa, it's worse. Where <laughs> <laughs> should I go? There we go. Sun's setting where you are, so. Yeah. There we go. There we go. So. I, I kind of want to go over some of these events for people to understand just the sheer size, right? Just the sheer volume. So like 2018, the, the Taiwan KOM four times in a row. Okay. 720K and 13.6 meters in elevation in 56 hours. That's massive. Yeah. I mean, okay. the climbing, just the climbing is just epic. Like when you, just for an example, like training for something like that compared it to when you, let's, we'll, we'll compare that to breaking the record. You have the Guinness world record for the amount of kilometers ridden in seven days. Now that was a flat, that was a, you know, a much flatter yeah. route but you specifically designed that as a flatter app to be able to yeah. accommodate that amount of mileage. But when you look at that, just the sheer volume of Ks or the sheer volume of meters climbed, it, it's massive. And I don't think people can comprehend the sheer amount of caloric intake and the, the amount of wattage output that you're doing to, and then the rest days after that are monstrous, you're toast your toast for weeks and months <laughs> and like yeah like the the KOM like let's let's start there like the KOM was the first sort of it was the first time we'd ever documented anything I'd done and it was like I look back and we were like cowboys like we honestly had no idea what we were doing like my, I had no nutrition strategy like I had no idea what we were doing and we went and it, and it sort of worked out and we were just lucky, I guess, but like, I can honestly say, like, looking back now, like that was rookie hour. We had no idea what we were doing and it somehow came together. And the film for that one is one of my favorites, but yeah, super special. Cause again, like my dad was there. I had two like great mates from home back there. And the idea behind that was like, I live in Perth back in Australia is where I come from. And it's a, it's a small city and it's most of Australia would consider it, I guess, the end of the earth. Um, so there's not a lot of opportunity from sponsorship point of view or, um, you know, partnerships. And I decided, look, if I want to get sponsors and partners, I need to go and do something on like a, a more global scale. Taiwan is relatively close. I knew that the Taiwan KOM event was coming up. So I thought, well, why don't we do something at the KOM and try and build some exposure because there'll be media there surely. That was like the, the background to it. And yeah, we went and did it and it was great and it was a success. And I guess, you know, that was a stepping stone onto the, onto the next ones, but. Tell people yeah. the, the, the percentage, right? The, the steepness of the KOM in Taiwan, everybody talks about the, the, the percent grade is insane. Yeah. So it's like, you, it's a climb from sea level to 3,200 meters. And it, so it's essentially like 85 kilometer climb, but the final 10 kilometers from memory 
has sections of 22%. So you get up there, you're at altitude and you, you're pretty bloody tired from the 75 kilometers that's preceded you. And then, you know, you're dancing on the pedals trying to get up these steep gradients and... Wishing for another gear. And then if you had that gear, you were wishing for another one. Yeah, you're just constantly hunting for gears. How many times you hit that button, you're like, oh my God, please be another one. Please one be another one. <laughs> Everybody who rides bikes has that moment where they're riding and they're climbing and they're like, oh God, I don't have any more. One more, please. Just give me one more. And then if you had it, you'd still want another one. Exactly. Um, but, but this event, right? So this thing gave us the idea for the next... No, this is incorrect. So, okay, I'll, I'll give you the background. After this event, I wanted to go and do this event around the Tour de France where I would chase the Tour de France from behind. I didn't get, I couldn't source any funding. I couldn't make it happen. And it's a very like, I know now it's like a very logistically rich project. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So I had this space in the calendar for something and I thought, you know, Tour de France, maybe I could do something around like the three Grand Tours. And we came up with a concept, the Grand Tours Everesting project, which was essentially three Everestings in three countries, Italy, mm -hmm. France, and Spain, because of the Grand Tours in three days. So we picked the highest peak in Italy, the highest peak in France, and we actually end up going the highest peak in Andorra just for logistical reasons. Um, and yeah, basically Everested them back to back to back and then transferred in between in a car. And again, like absolute rookie hour. Like <laughs> my dad drove the car for three days nonstop and <laughs> like he didn't get any sleep and it was dangerous. And he was very, like, it was, mind-blowing to think we survived that but yeah another great project a lot of fun and, and I guess another stepping stone for, for things to come. I just think about riding doing one of those Everestings and then sitting down in a car to go to the next one that yeah. to me is like and, and for folks out there who don't ride which there are a lot once you stop and sit it's bad juju. It's bad news for your legs. Everything starts to seize up. Even when you stop to take a leak, it still starts to do that. Yeah. So to sit in the car for a bunch of hours, like, what are you doing? Having your legs hang out the window, like laying down in the back seat? Like, so like, again, rookie hour, we have a van, like with one of those little beds above the back seat. So I'm, I'm laying in the van and it was middle of summer. So what felt like 3000 degrees and my dad's hammering down the highway and I'm just bouncing around in the bed. Oh. And so it was very difficult to get sleep, but I was sort of resting nonetheless. And then it was, yep. All right, mate, we're here at the bottom of the climb up. You go, you know, you've got seven ascents of Col de la Bonnet and off I go again. And yeah, like, that was very difficult because like I had no nutrition strategy. And I think these are the things you learn over the years that sort of make you a better athlete. So these nutrition tricks and these strategies you develop. But at the time, like I was eating like chocolate bars for three days and like Burger King. And I just had no idea. You wrecked your gut. I bet. Yeah. And yeah, I learned a lot from that trip. And I think I then put some some good processes in place and sort of hired help from professionals to really hone things in. Uh, but this this trip was cool because at the end of this trip we came to Girona for the I guess my second time. Um, and it was while we we're in Girona I decided look up I think you know this could be a great place to be based. And I I made a decision to to basically you know spend a few weeks here. And then I thought you know. I'm going to go home. I'm going to find someone to rent my house in Australia and I'm going to move back here full time because, you know, this is where things happen and you know, I want to be somewhere where there's opportunity. So I came back here in 2019 and I've been here ever since. I mean, you're in the center of it all. I mean, you're like, it is the cycling hub 
of, yeah. of of Europe because well you have all the Americans that move there that race and but there's so many folks there so I mean there's riding p- people to ride with the food is killer right yeah. the weather's great that's good. Catalan food's great I mean I could eat there I mean I could just go on and on about the food. <laughs> I'm just so I'm so jealous to be able to sit there and like walk outside and get pinchos one day and you know just the jamon yeah. alone is just priceless oh. to me I could eat jamon till the end of the days. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about the monster. Let's, I mean, look, I, I, the, the Guinness world record is a massive one. You know, watching the documentary on that. And, and by the way, for folks that don't know, you can see a lot of these great, great experiences that Jack has done through his website, which are, has all those different events that he's done. And it's, eye-opening really really eye-opening i mean you've got your team there they're feeding you and it's like you're in and you're out and you're trying to get some rest but then they're like you know the moments where they're like dude get up you know you can see that like knowing you and knowing when they're shaking you to get up i know you're cooked yeah i was cooked (laughs) you were cooked right like i I could see that And, and and i think that's a really powerful messaging and and the way that you're you're sharing your experiences with the world, not only about the bike and the adventure and the trials and tribulations of doing it, you're also talking the whole time about how it affects you mentally and how it makes you feel better. And I think that's really powerful messaging that a lot of people can benefit from. Yeah, like I'd love, I love nothing more when it's like somebody reaches out and sends it, whether it's an email or a message and says, look, I I can really resonate with this. And like, for me, that's like, yeah, I'll keep doing this like for the rest of my life. If I get these messages, because it's it's very rewarding. And like, that's what I want to achieve. Like remove the stigma, you know, we all suffer. And, you know, as bike riders, we rejoice in suffering. So why do we pity when we suffer mentally? You know, it's, well, I mean, ultimately, that's how we became friends. And that's how yeah. that's how we connected, because I reached out and asked one day, like, hey, what are you what are you doing to like balance this? And yeah. like I said earlier, those tidbits really, really helped me. And I think that's a really great point that you're making. If you fell and broke your leg or your arm, everybody points at that cast and goes, oh, man, what happened? How did you do that? And it's yeah. accepted, right? It's like, oh, dude, that must have been an awesome crash. And was that a great rot, you know, and it's cool. There's they, they put yeah. a cool factor into getting hurt, which I never really quite understood that, right? Yeah. Or, or if it's not that cool, like you slipped on some ice, they're like, you got to make up a better story than that, yeah. right? <laughs> How many times have you heard that? But when you say, yeah, I can't deal right now. I'm, I'm kind of just, I'm coming unplugged. And people yeah. are like, whoa, right? How many times have you had yeah. that? They're like, yeah, I, I can't deal with that. You know, that's too much for me. And it's, yeah. it's really kind of sad because it's out of sight for a lot of folks. So it's out of mind, right? They don't know how to deal. And, and I think that's a really big piece of the world that we need to change because if somebody reaches out for help and you can't deal, that's yeah. going to have a really adverse effect on that person that's reaching out for help. Yeah. Suddenly it feels taboo and it, there's no reason it should feel taboo because you know, I'd say more people suffer from mental health disorders than people suffer from broken arms. You know, it's like, it's more common. And I think there's, there's that fear of the unknown, right? Everybody, yeah. everybody needs to be a little more open-minded to it and, and just really be, I would say, a little more welcoming to the conversation. I think yeah, that's the best way sure. to say it, right? For sure. So the world record, you have a Guinness. What does that Guinness thing look like, right? You got like this little plaque, like you just graduated from college, right? From university. It's like Jack Thompson, ultra cyclist, Guinness Book of World Records. Like it gave you, a, you're in the book, dude. That's so like when you, when they, they, so they email you and they say, all right, you've, you know, it's approved. You've got the Guinness World Record. Like how many certificates do you want? And I thought, whoa, I'm going to get six of these because I don't ever want to like, you know lose them or I want to be able to like give one to my folks and I give one to my brother and (laughs) so I actually still need to get it framed it's sitting like in my bike room but I need to get it you know in a little plaque and hang it on the wall and 
but I remember when it arrived and it's in this little envelope and you rip the thing open and you sort of look at it and it, it took me back to like Christmas as a kid because you know Santa would always bring us a Guinness book of records every year for the stocking and we'd look through it and look at the world's tallest man and the longest fingernails and you know these crazy crazy humans and it was a very nice feeling to think like wow I've actually I've got a record I've got a Guinness world record it's amazing that the Guinness Book of World Records for every kid is like monumental. My son has probably six different volumes of as they yeah. get updated. And it's always crazy. The smallest man, the tallest man, like you said, the longest yeah. fingernails, like yeah. the craziest things in the world. Like it, it, it's so inspiring for kids to like, not that they're gonna make themselves grow taller or shrink, but that yeah. they have these opportunities to push boundaries. And yeah. I think that is what the Guinness Book of World Records for me has always been, is like pushing boundaries. Yeah, for me, it's always been like this. I don't know, I could spend hours just looking at it, you know, like I could, it's been 15 years since I've ever looked at one, but I could still tell you how they look, like the holograms on the front and like the logo and the, the glossy pages. Like it's like only yesterday I looked at it, it's just like childhood memories right there. And the mix of actual photography of the individuals and then the caricatures of the individuals. Yeah. Right? It's good fun. I need to get another one. I mean, you got to get the new one because you're in it. I don't, but the thing is, I don't know if you automatically get in it. I need to have a look. You get like your record, but I think there's a lot of records exist that aren't in the book. So maybe I haven't really got the record unless it's in the book. I need to have, have some chats. There we go. That's, that's the next, that's the Please next goal. One. <laughs> so let's talk about this monumental feat from this year the amazing chase i mean yeah. i was watching the world was watching and <laughs> you know you started 10 days after the tour de france had started correct yes yeah and you raced them to the finish you started 10 days late you missed the start of the tour yep you know, you were out having brunch, you forgot the day started, you missed the start of the tour. And you were like, oh shit, I'm 10 days late. I'm gonna have to, I gotta beat him to the finish. <laughs> so, man, logistically, it's a nightmare. I, I know the nightmares that when you start to look at trying to do an event around the Tour de France, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, There's roads that are blocked off by the Tour de France. They don't want you on them before and they sure don't want you, want you yeah. on them prior to you, you know, the, the race team getting there. You have a vehicle that has to support you. You've got food things, but let's just put it into perspective. You're doubling down every day. You doubled down and did two stages by yourself each day. Yeah. That's no joke. Like I can't even, like, I can't fathom the idea of two mountain stages back to back. And one of which was a double, I recall this year yeah on two man like this event like the amazing chase you know presented by wahoo like we were so lucky to get wahoo behind because like, thanks matt porter of, matt this is a shout out to you yeah in terms <laughs> of logistics and like just the sheer volume of planning like having that team behind was just like invaluable but anyway roller coaster one word is like the amazing chase was a roller coaster massive highs massive lows but above all a massive amount of rain which like i never would have predicted for france in the middle of summer so which like, to be honest was probably to your benefit because if it had been hot yeah. as all hades you would have been cooked yeah oh dehydrated and like then you got a whole lot of other challenges I mean, you would have needed a sunscreen sponsor or somebody to ride yeah. next to you with an umbrella just to protect you from the sun. It would have been so bad. So like I said, yeah, you're spot on. Two stages a day. Um, we had to factor in like, you know, when are we going to actually catch the peloton and how is that even going to happen? Because we can't go past them. Well, we're never going to catch them on the actual road. So we've got to catch them either after a stage or on a rest day. And that really, like, we worked out it has to be on a rest day. So then you sort of, you are very much locked into a schedule. 
And with the rain the first couple of days, it made sticking to the schedule really difficult, especially as we got to the more mountainous days. And like day one, I was 400 kilometers. So like I was 50 kilometers ahead of schedule. So essentially it was 350 kilometers a day, an average of around 5,000 meters of vert. Um, but then, you know, some days were slightly more, some days were slightly less, but you had to catch them on day eight or it wasn't going to happen. And so it was this constant battle like, oh, great, today I'm ahead, but tomorrow I'm behind. And your mind's all over the place. And, you know, I think I'm really keen for this film to go live, which is, you know, coming very soon because I think it'll give, you know, listeners a great insight to some of the difficulties that it's, it's very hard to sort of portray through words. So we spoke before about, you know, when you stop writing, it's very difficult to start writing again. But the nature of this event meant, you know, we were riding for 200 kilometers in the morning and then I'd sit in a car for three hours and then I'd ride another 150, 200 kilometers in the evening. Sitting in that car was like hell because it's three hours of the day that you can't do anything. Like you're not making progress. You're basically waiting. It's three hours that your body is suddenly relaxing and you know, your, your heart rate's dropping and you sort of, you know, your blood sugar's stabilizing and then it's, all right, get back on your bike and you've got another 150 kilometers and you've got to wake up again. And for me, this was like the hardest bit of the whole event was the transfers. Like, without a doubt, because they were mentally very taxing. I feel tired talking about it. So you, anyway. it's not even like you could sleep in the middle because your brain is going, you're constantly, yeah. and when you're, when, when you're obsessing over that yeah. moment, you can't stop inside there. And I think that's what the bike does for both of us. It allows us to kind of set everything else aside and focus on the wheel, the wind, what's in front of you, the smell. And I think when you have to stop and sit there, oh my God, I can't imagine what's going on in there. Yeah, because it was like, I'd stop, but then I'd have to, you know, get all of the data that I've just accumulated and I had to send that to a team for preparation for the social posts. And then I was on the phone to like a journalist for a media publication. And then I've got a partner here in Girona and I'm trying to call her. And then I've got parents back in Australia that want to know what's going on. And it's like, oh shit, like I've got five minutes until I got to go again. <laughs> in my mind, I thought, wow, three hours, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to eat. I'm going to just relax and I'm going to be fresh and ready to go. But, you know, it was just an unknown. And yeah, there was no way I could have prepared for it. I just had to sort of deal with it on the spot. But, you know, we got through it and we got to day eight, whenever it was, uh, the, f the second rest day of the tour. And I passed them in Andorra so that they were enjoying a day off. And yeah, that was special passing them for a number of reasons. Like for me, it was like, oh, I've sort of achieved the goal now. Like I wanted to pass the Peloton and unless something goes catastrophic now, I should reach Paris before them. Uh, but as well, it was the first time, you know, that following stage that, you know, nobody had ridden on these roads yet. And a lot of the roads were actually closed. So I had essentially like spectators and caravans and, you know, That's people, amazing. you know, shouting. And, you know, I was in the Tour de France circus, but I was just far enough ahead that I was there alone. And like, it's like this, it's like that sensation of like, you imagine if you're a child and your parents went to the toy store the day before Christmas and they somehow left you in there and you had the whole night to just go and explore and you could try all the toys and just test them and play with them. This is that feeling, you know, it's like, oh, I'm ahead and I'm like here and no one really knows I'm here and super cool. Uh, did, and yeah. did, the, did the people on the side of the road know what was going on? Did they know that you were out there? Did they, did they understand the volume of what you were doing? I don't think, no, I don't think so. No. So it was like, it, 
it would have been cool if they had, because then I guess then there would have been more interaction. But at the same time, it was almost nice being under the radar and, you know, like I love riding with people and interacting, but it was nice to just be able to ride at my own rhythm and, you know, put the headphones in and you know, enjoy that time alone. In saying that at the end of this trip, I was well and truly sick of riding alone. Uh, and what was special was obviously the, the Tour de France finishes on the Champs-Élysées and there's eight laps of the Champs. And I had the specialized Creo with me and, uh, you know, it was torture throughout the trip because every time the car came past, I saw the specialized Creo on the back and I thought, wow, I'd love to be on that thing with a motor hammering up this climb as opposed to using my legs. <laughs> but I didn't do it, I promise. And so come to the Shumps, I had like this team of people that I, you know, I've been living with for 10 days, but I hadn't really had an opportunity to interact with. And so I said to them, all right, every one of you is gonna do a lap on the Shumps with me. You're gonna ride the Creo and we're gonna get like 20 minutes alone just to talk and you know, enjoy that interaction. And so that was a yeah, super special way and you know, memorable way to finish it because I think it is such a team effort to sort of acknowledge all the guys that were there as part of it. And then, yeah, yeah, the sun set and I popped open the bottle of champagne and we actually ended up at McDonald's that night for dinner because nothing else was open. <laughs> the celebratory Big Mac. Oh my gosh. That's hysteric. It's not what I would have expected you to say. Like, yeah. hey, we celebrated at, you know, we went to yeah. Ducasse or we went to... <laughs> I would have loved to have done it, but by the time we got to the hotel, it was like 11 and then there was check-in troubles and I'm still in like dirty kit and I'm like, just get me food. Like I need food. <laughs> you need food and you need to get out of your superhero costume is what I like oh, to call our cycling kits. That's that. chamois. Once you're stuck in a chamois for too long, it's never, never oh, good. Not good. Not good. Never feels good. So what is... You and so you're launching this film now. When is this film? When is, when is that expected for release? I don't know if I can say the date, but it's in the coming weeks. Oh, great! Excellent. So super soon, and like, I'm really excited by it. I've seen it. Like, I actually cried when I watched it. There's a certain part, and I think it'll get like emotions flowing for a lot of people. Um, so I'm eager for feedback. Uh, yeah, I'm, let's see what people think of it. I'm looking forward to it. I can't, I can't wait to see it because I was watching from afar the whole time. And, you know, it's, it's so powerful, the message that you're conveying to the world. You know, the bicycle is more than just a mode of transportation and fun, right? Yeah. It's also a form of medicine for a lot of people. For sure, hey, for sure. You know, and I think that's, you know, yes, it has that. The cool thing I keep telling people is, is, it's that first moment when you're a kid that you can get the farthest point away from your parents. Yeah. That freedom, right? It's that moment it? of freedom. You're like, holy shit, do they know I've gone this far? Am I going to get in yeah. trouble? And they're like, I can keep going. <laughs> right? Good, huh? And it's cool to be that kid all over again, but every day. Like it has, yeah. there's this joy in it. And the bicycle, it's such a simple piece of equipment that allows so much joy and so many wonderful yeah. things. And it just it's so simple. It's like left, right, left, right. Like, could it be any more meditative? Yeah, and it's and it's that's that that motion, that consistent motion, that hum of the wheel on the pavement. You know, just that that smell of the air, and it's you know, it's really funny. I was saying to somebody the other day, one of the best parts for me about the bike is when I'm riding, and the things that you see that you wouldn't normally see on the same road in a car. Yeah. You see and smell flowers. You see, like for me, I see things that are edible. You know, I see wild yeah. fennel and I see bay leaves and I, you know, but I can smell them. And sometimes I like, I smell them and I stop on the side of the road. I'm like, oh, these are great. You know, and I'm like picking yeah. things. People think I'm crazy, you know, but it, <laughs> that's what's magic about it. It gives you this sense of time and place where you are. It's like, you're correct. You're spot on because like, the car, you, you can cover so much ground, but you're traveling too fast to take it in. Walking or running, it's like, it's great if your knees can handle it, mine can't. Yep. But it's sort of like, you know, 
a 10 kilometer run or 20 kilometer run is a long way and you, you can't quite get far enough away, but being able to cover like a hundred kilometers on a bike or 60 kilometers on a bike, you're riding at a pace that you, you, spot, you know, you can see things and you can smell them and like you can interact with the things that are happening around you. And I think it's unique in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, you can go from one town to the next. You can, yeah. you know, for, uh, for me living in San Francisco, I can cross the Golden Gate Bridge and it can be 25 degrees warmer on the other side. Yeah. Right? And then I can go climb mountains or I can ride the road for hours and I can go see farms. And I think that that's a joy. It's a powerful yeah. joy and it brings so much to people. And it's just... I don't know. There's just so many things about it that I can continue to go on and on about, but yeah, you know, and I think that's, that's the, the fun thing. So let's talk what's next. I mean, I know you're trying to have some, a bit of recovery. Let's be honest. The amazing chase definitely takes its toll. An event of that size yeah, you know, and that amount of output takes quite a bit of recovery, right? So I'm sure you're, you're on the tail end of the recovery now, I'm assuming, my guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm back into training now. So I'm not a lot of volume, but I've, like, I've picked the intensity right up again. And like, the goal is to try and increase the FTP again because that dropped off just with the, just the monster training kilometers. You know, something's got to give. So I'm, I'm working on that now. I'm actually off to Portugal. Uh, well, first of all, I'm off to Amsterdam actually for the release of the film at Ride Out in Amsterdam on um, in the next couple of weeks. And then following that, I'm straight across to Portugal. And we've actually got a month in Portugal and believe it or not, we're actually looking to relocate to Portugal for 2022. So we're going for a gravel event there in October. And then I, I do have an event there, a one-day event that I'm going to tackle. Um, when I say event, it's, it's got to be secret with those things. You can't let all the cats out of the bag. It's a climbing. It's a climbing challenge. Another mm. climbing challenge. Um, yeah, there's a there's a peak in Portugal, Torre or Toro. I don't know how you pronounce it. And I'm going to do something cool on Tor Torre. Um, so I'm going to climb at a, there's, there's six different ways to climb it. Basically, I'm happy to talk about it. There's six different ways to climb one peak. And so if you climb all six ways, it's 400 kilometers and 11,000 meters of vert. And I thought, you know, what better way to get to know a climb than, you know, climb it from all sides and, you know, enjoy the sort of, you imagine a volcano with a road around the bottom. It's sort of like this with all different ways up. That sounds um, amazing. Yeah, so that, that's just a one day and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I sort of see it like this is a fun day out and I want to interact with people and 2022, I have one big project planned um, again in Portugal and for those that haven't ridden in Portugal, like I highly recommend it. For me, it's like a cycling paradise that's not yet been touched or explored, like the roads, people the food it's like spain but you know cheaper and less people and it's amazing so get over there um yeah i can't say what that project is but it's a project that lasts for five months so it's a it's a big daddy um and hopefully i can share more soon uh but yeah the future looks like it'll be in portugal for us so excited by what that brings that sounds great. And, and, and with all of these things happening and, and, and picking, how do you pick and choose these different events? Cause I know, I'm sure a lot of folks would say, you know, these are big miles, they're, they're big lofty goals, but how do you find these particular goals or like, how did you find Torre or this mountain, which I'm yeah. not saying right either. It's like, what I <laughs> Somebody said, like, why don't you go and like race an event or do like one of the pre-planned events? For me, like a lot of the joy in it is I like the creativity and trying to come up with an idea. And I like researching a region and thinking, well, I wonder if you could do something there and how would you do it? And how, how could you make it a real challenge? So like to give you an idea, like I spent countless hours a week on Google Earth, like that 
website is insane and I zoom in and I zoom out and I look at different areas and countries and I just I guess that's my creative side I like to look at things and come up with ways to make a challenge out of it um the project in Portugal next year the background to that is like you know I'm going to move to a new country what's the best way to get to know a country is by riding in every area of the country right so I figure all right I'm going to create an event that's based around the whole of Portugal and exploring the whole of Portugal <laughs> and then I sort of start working out well what could I do how could I do it and this is sort of it sort of develops in this you know the spreadsheets and yeah there's a bit of work that goes into it but like I enjoy that aspect of it because for me that's like a bit of a creative outlet so I think, I think that's a really great bit of information for folks because this is not something that's done like you said earlier some of your earlier events were a little cowboy man cowboy amateur but now it's really devils in the details right you're you're researching, you're mapping, you're thinking it through, you're finding alternate routes, you're looking for safety routes. You know, there's all these yeah. different things that have to be done. So it's not just, okay, I'm going to go do it. Like I, I try to say this a lot to young cooks, like just because, you know, somebody can run around the block with their dog a couple of times, doesn't mean they can show up and do the Boston marathon and win it. Like it yeah. takes, it takes training, it takes technique, it takes education, it takes, you know, a lot of work to get to this point of being able to what you're able to do. I mean, this is, this is serious business. And I don't, and I don't want to take away from the fact that it's not only difficult, it's also dangerous. Yeah. You know, when you get yeah. tired on the bike, your handling skills, it doesn't matter how great you are, they just go down. Yeah. And Something as simple as hitting a pebble on the road and your arms are tired and you lose control of the bars. So it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to get to the ability set that you're at right now. I don't, I don't, I can't emphasize that enough because I look at the mileage, I look at what you're doing and I just, my head, the top of my head blows off. I can't even fathom some of these things. And I think there's a good message for, for anyone that's listening that like wants to get involved with like, you know, they're doing these ultra things is like start small and just, you know, build up slowly. I think, you know, there's no need to go and ride 200 kilometers for your first long ride, like go and ride 60 and then, you know, make it 80 a couple of weeks later and enjoy that process of, of growing into an athlete. I don't think it's something that happens overnight. And I think that's a good thing because you do learn a lot along the way. And I think that's all part of the process and it's sort of the enjoyment in being able to look back and think, boy, you know, we were cowboys when we did that, but you know, we learned from it. Like it's all part of the, the bigger picture. I mean, you, you learn about the process of what you're doing. You learn about the sport. You also learn a lot about yourself and what you're able to endure, what you're able to push through. I think it's a, it's a really, really powerful message. Yeah. Thanks, man. Hey, I just remembered one thing as well. We're actually supposed to be in Bhutan right about now, if I remember correctly. I know. You were. <laughs> That's the goal for next year. I want to go there and I want to do that event. We should do it together. Now, I'll be keen, huh? That would be, I mean, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to keep up with you, but um, I will try my job. Yeah, we should go and shoot something around it, like a cool little film project around like the, the culture of Bhutan and the food and the, the cycling culture, like place is amazing you've been i've never been and i'm like enamored by that idea of going and seeing but also just that climb is insane one yeah and just to be able to climb that to get to the top of that peak i mean the the the, the buddhist mentality behind it and all of this there's so much about it that yeah. i lean towards that i want to be a part of like Talk about suffer. That's a suffer fest. Yeah, man. Well, I think Red Bull consider it the toughest one day event on earth. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it's that multiple times. It's, it's a, it's called slay the dragon. Yeah. 2022. We're there, mate. All right. Down. We're doing it. Done. Deal. <laughs> There's a cool guy I'll introduce you to. His name's uh, Dick Grace. He's uh, he owns Grace Vineyards up in Napa. And, and yeah, cool. he, 
he's a really nice guy. And he actually, when I started talking about it with you and I was talking about it with him because he goes over there quite often and he wanted to like, I want to go with you. I want to be there when you do this. So he's a great guy. So, well, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on. It's getting late. You're going to need to get dinner. So we're going to prime you up for a couple dinner things right now. So this is our rapid fire. Okay. So you ready? Yeah, for, I think I'm ready. You think you're ready. No answers wrong. This is just personal choices. Okay. So red or white wine? Mate, no wine. I don't drink alcohol. Perfect. Neither do I. So that's two of us. Okay. Hamburger, hot dog. Hamburger. Ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. Man, there's so many ketchup people out there. (laughs) I do like mustard, but growing up, it was always like ketchup and like, Maybe it's an Australian thing. I have ketchup on everything. That's so crazy. Rice, okay. everything. Chocolate or fruit? Oh, chocolate. Okay. Dark chocolate, milk chocolate. Dark. Okay. Nigiri, sashimi. Sashimi. No, nigiri. I got mixed up what they were. Nigiri. Okay. Sea urchin caviar. Caviar. It's so funny to hear so many, so many different people. I have a lot of people tell me they hate sea urchin. Like I've, uh, I've not eaten sea urchin, but I've heard like the taste just changes in your mouth. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> coffee or tea? Coffee. Cappuccino, espresso. Cappuccino. Nice. Regular milk, alternative milk. I'm on alternative. Which one? I have um, hazelnut milk. <laughs> I've never even heard of that one. <laughs> I actually really like normal milk, but I just find it go like I don't drink enough of it that it goes off in the fridge. Uh, so I have the nut milk because I can keep it in there for longer. Okay. Beef or pork? I like beef. Okay. Lobster or crab? Lobster. You guys have different lobsters in Australia. You have the big monster tails with not yeah. a lot of claw. I don't think crayfish. people... I'm sorry? We call them crayfish. And you can, like, where I grew up, we can go in the water, we can dive, and we can pick them from under a rock. It's, like, insane. Which I is funny, because in the States, crayfish are this big. Yeah? Yeah, they're little yeah. tiny dirt bugs that grow, that thrive in fresh water, not salt water. We've so got our, monsters, man. big so our version is you know the lobster americanus which is out of maine or then we have the spiny lobster in southern california but again that's in the ocean but our version of crawfish are little guys this big that are in fresh water yeah little scampies yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay so what is your favorite spanish food I love the uh, jamon. I'm with you, mate. Like, and I've got to the point where, like, oh, whether it's good or bad, I feel like I've become a bit of a connoisseur. Like, I can taste a good one and a bad one now. Which is your and favorite it's an expensive one? Habit. Do you have a particular one that you like more than the others? I like the it's like the the best one is the like the Huelva Huelva. It's like a region like right down south next to Sevilla. But we actually buy it from Mercadona, believe it or not. Mercadona have a very good, and Mercadona is like a, I don't know what you call it, like a Costco or like a, like a supermarket. Okay. And they carve it fresh off the bone. And it's actually like very good quality for the price. That's amazing. We only have, we have very few varieties of Iberico in the States still. So, yeah. um, it's very addicting. I have a, I have one in my fridge upstairs and you have a whole like leg. I have a whole one. Yeah. Oh, mate. This is I have a whole cool. one and I have my hand cranked meat slicer. So like I drop the sucker on and nice. it's, uh, it's <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm pretty much addicted to, to ham. It's, it's, I'm, I'm so interested in it. Actually. I, I got, I went onto YouTube a couple of weeks ago and I was like, how does it become like from a pig to like costing however much it costs per hundred grams and it's, it's time. fascinating yep time is money especially when you're taking a piece of pork right you're having this specific breed the aberco de bellota which is 
you know, the black pig that eats acorns and then it has to be butchered. And the way it's butchered, it's butchered when it's warm still right after the slaughter. So you get the right cuts and you don't make bad incisions. And then it's salted and then it's aged. Yeah. And then there's the five-year age, of course, is always going to be, you know, higher cost point because you're letting it hang there. And it's like, time is money. But the way it melts on your palate and the way it feels, addicting. Oh, it's the These, saltiness and like the fattiness of it is just like, Oh, blows your mind. All right. So let's talk about what is your go-to when you're on the bike and you're riding and it's like, you're doing these big events. You know, there's a lot of folks who like, I don't eat your traditional, what's considered ride food. I don't. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't agree with me. So yeah. I'm very, very different with that. And I don't know if you're the same way, but there's certain things I gravitate towards. And I'm curious as to what yours are. You know, it was weird. In France, it became croissants and butter. That makes I was, sense. I was craving like fat. But to begin with, it was more, I actually do a lot of my, get a lot of the calories from liquid. Um, just because I find it easier to keep track of and easier to adjust. But like if I had to go to a service station and I'm four hours deep and I'm bonking, what would I get? probably a Snickers bar or two. I'd get like a can of cold lemons um, Fanta. And depending on the temperature, probably an almond Magnum. What's that? What's an almond Magnum? Do you have Magnum ice creams in the States? I don't think so. What is it? Oh, is, it like, is it an ice cream it's, cone? It's not a cone. It's like you've got your white vanilla it's dipped in chocolate, but then there's like decadence of almonds on the outside. <laughs> it's freaking good. And you sort of like eat the chocolate off first before you have the vanilla <laughs> all over your face. <laughs> it's funny because there's so many folks that feel that cyclists eat like birds. They don't eat, you know, everything. There's a balance, right? But I think when you're putting out that much you have that much output, you need twice as much input. And I think sometimes, like there's a cyclist here, his name was John Stamstead. He was the Mac daddy. He was the one who created the ultra category, right? Yeah. He's ahead of the curve of everybody. He used to just do cans of cheese whiz. Yeah. Oh man, he used to just, it was caloric intake, what you were processing yeah. through. So it, it, it's really interesting to see and, and to get people to understand like there's a million different ways to skin the cat when it comes to riding the bike. Right. It's yeah. like, it's like, it doesn't have to be, you know, the expensive ride bars, so to speak, like a wrap, like today I took a wrap with Nutella and um, two wraps with one with Nutella, one with peanut butter. And it's like, it's cheap. It's caloric dense. It's tasty. It doesn't upset your stomach. It's like, doesn't have to be an expensive bar. Like get creative with it. And I think that's really important because, you know, I started doing a lot of my own foods, right? When like yeah. easy packable, like I pit dates, but then I stuff salted nuts inside the dates. So it's like a double, you're getting you know what? dates, cashews that are roasted and salted, or you can buy chocolate covered cashews and stick them inside the dates, but then they don't melt. I saw Matt Porter had done that and he tagged you, right? Yeah. And then I actually tried it myself and they're bloody good. And it's simple. Make sure though, if you're going to do it, don't coat the dates because the chocolate will melt on your hands. Put whatever yeah. you're sticking inside. You can even break a piece of chocolate and stick it inside and then a nut inside. And then, but you've got like this perfect fuel. It's simple carb, complex carb, simple sugar, complex sugar, and the nut protein. All is what your yeah. body's craving. The only problem is like, it's very difficult not to eat them when you're not on the bike. Oh yeah, that's yeah. most of them before the next morning's ride. <laughs> <laughs> you created yourself a dessert <laughs> or a snack, which which could be you could be eating worse snacks, right? Let's yeah. be honest. Pretty healthy. So, where can people find the movie release when it happens? Uh, all right, jump across to Wahoo's YouTube channel. Okay, this is where the movie's going to drop. Um, yeah. For the, for if, if you want to sort of recap The Amazing Chase, jump across to my website, jackultracyclist.com. 
Um, and yeah, if you want to follow along on Instagram, Jack Ultra Cyclist. Folks, and I, I can tell you from personal experience, it's really fun to keep up with what Jack's doing. There's so many crazy things and it's always just a joy to see him finish these goals that he sets for himself and the messaging that he's getting across. It's okay to not be okay is extremely powerful, extremely important, and it's very beneficial to the world as a whole. And I think we all really need to, uh, you know, applaud him for being so open and honest because not a lot of people are, they're always scared to tell the truth. And I can't say thank you enough, Jack, for your time today, but you know, the conversations we've had for the past year and a half and all the fun things we're looking forward to. And yeah. it is a deal. Okay. This is going to be now sunk up. We'll make Matt Porter. You hear this, this is going to be what we're doing next year. So get ready to get on board with this. Matt, Jack and I will ride Slay the Dragon next September in Bhutan. It's happening. You know? It's happening, mate. It's happening. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate all your time, and I'm looking forward to seeing the, seeing the release of the film. Yeah, and, man, it's been a lot of fun talking. I've really enjoyed it, and it's it's nice to chat face-to-face to face to face as opposed to um, on text on Instagram. So, yeah, let's do it again soon. I look forward to it, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to ride before we have to go to Bhutan. I'd like to yeah. be able to connect and ride. Portugal sounds like yeah. a fun place to go. Never been. Come visit. Uh, I'm down. All right. Thank you. Cheers, man.